Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 45, Quo Vadimus, where we will be looking at chapter 88 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of desaturation. Alrighty, let's be real here. This is the anti-penultimate episode that covers The Name of the Wind. If this is your first episode, first, welcome, thank you. Why? But again, thank you. Maybe... Go back a few and catch up and come back to this and we'll say hi again. Okay, well, you're still here. And if you're new, you might want an explanation of the podcast. Fine. But this is the last airbender. <laughs> Maybe not. Anyway. Okay, so explain the joke, Will. So it's a joke based on... A common MST3K and Rift Tracks thing. Anytime you see something that says the last X or the final Y, there would always be a bit where one of the characters would sigh and say, fine, this is the last airbender, but this is the final sacrifice. <laughs> what have you. Like a, an exasperated parent dealing with a persistent child. We might actually need to name the last, last episode. Fine. Alrighty. Now that we have thoroughly chewed up a whole bunch of time, I'm going to speed read our explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore parallels of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemus of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. All right, so before we begin, let's get a few disclaimers out of the way. First of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, again, as always, we wouldn't say no. Second, our discussions will naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo. It's okay. We like weirdos. We're weirdos. We are definitely weirdos. Either way, spoilers ahead. Finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, God knows we do it, we won't stand for any abuse of the author responsible. All right. And so with that all out of the way, with our jokes explained, because an explained joke is the funniest joke, as everyone knows, let's go ahead and do our 45-second recap. Phoenix, it's your turn. I've got my stopwatch. You ready? As ready as I'll ever be. All right. In three, two, one, go. Quoth's tale about the Underthing is quite suddenly interrupted by the usual crowd showing up for dinner and a story. Chronicler puts on a show of getting Quoth's legendary deeds wrong, so Cobb takes over just in time for the framing device's big bad to appear and take over the narrative for a bit. It's a skin dancer that has taken the body of Chronicler's nemesis from the beginning of the book and who, now that it is possessed, wrecks the inn, maims and kills people, and is summarily executed by the smith's prentice. We learn that the kid's name is Aaron, while Quoth, Chronicler, and Bast wait impatiently for him to leave so that Quoth can finish his own story. 
32.78 seconds. You did good. Yay! And no raspberries for you. Yay! <laughs> it was a long chapter. It was, and an eventful one at that. And it also tells us about some of our underlying mysteries for the series as a whole. So let's dive in. So we named this episode Quo Vadimus after the final episode of Sports Night. We've lately been on a bit of an Aaron Sorkin jag because we like fantasy stories. And I mean, if we can accept stories of people using magic and music to shape the world, of course we can accept a fantasy in which reasonable people can get things accomplished in government. Yay, the West Wing. But Sports Night is still my favorite of his works. And that final episode, Quo Vadimus, means where are we going? And I think that's an appropriate title for this particular episode here, as we're really starting to dig into the meat of who Quoth is at the time he is telling his story to Chronicler. So, shall we dive in? We shall. I think it opens kind of ominously, actually. We can tell by looking that it's near the end of the book. While there have been eventful passages, there hasn't really been a real climax to the story. I mean, we've got the Dragus burning down the town of Traben. We have Quoth's loot being shattered and the cliffhanger of, and I was expelled. My life was over. But that gets resolved really quickly, and it doesn't necessarily feel very climactic. But this is the framing device's climax, for sure. The framing device is a story in and of itself. So heavy boots on the wooden landing that startled the people inside the inn. Kind of ominous. Yeah, it's an interruption, and we haven't had too many of those. And then, all of that tension... It's like that fake jump scare that shows up at the beginning of every horror movie where you get the usual like ominous music, you get the camera POV from the monster's eye view, you get all of these things that are meant to ratchet up the tension and then it's just some guy, you know, it's someone that we expect. I'll do you one better. Since this is near the end of the story, it actually more reminds me of... So, to rewind a little bit. Gone Home, one of my absolutely favorite games, because I like walking simulators. I really like narrative games. When I first encountered it, I wanted to see if there were any jump scares, if there was anything scary about it. A lot of walking simulators thrive on a narrative that is at least creepy. And Gone Home, you're in an unfamiliar house that is huge, sprawling, full of secrets, and you kind of think you're going to wind up finding a dead body. I mean, you don't. Spoiler for a eight-year-old game. You're welcome. But there is one part where you have to turn on a light to a basement, and the light bulb burns out spectacularly loudly, like it's the sound effect and the light effect and everything. It's jump scare. That's what this feels like, because... You turn on the light, you get all of the jump, and then all of the tension ebbs out as there's nothing there. Yep, it's all a setup. Turns out it's just the usuals. Shep, Jake, Graham, Cobb. Like, these are all basically 
guys trying to go into Cheers where everybody knows their name. <laughs> where Coat plays the role of Sam and Bast plays the role of Woody. And then Chronicler is basically Frasier. Yeah. And then obviously you have Old Cobb is Cliff. And then Shep is Norm. Carter is Coach. Why is Carter Coach? Because he always seems to think he knows everything. He's trying to be authoritative. That's okay. Cobb. Well, but Carter is always trying to be authoritative specifically to Aaron. And I had to fix someone. I like the description of the exchange had a well-worn feel, comfortable as old shoes. Mostly because the name Jake is used like three times in the story. Once for the kid that sells squash with his dad in Tarbian. Once for the name of the cobbler's son, Old Shoes. And once for this Jake. It seems to be a fairly common name in the Four Corners. It does. And, I mean, I think of some of my best friends. I have a best friend named Jake. And, yeah, it's a good name. It is. So, yeah. They definitely have their patterns. And even though they see each other all the time and they have the same conversations, they kind of like having those same conversations. So they immediately notice that there's somebody new in town because how could they not? They start asking what Chronicler's up to. And Kvothe feeds them this line about how Chronicler is here as a scribe taking down Bast's will. Which is hilarious. <laughs> Whatsoever monies I have saved at the time of my death shall go to the widow Sage. And Bast is loudly shouting this across the room to help in raising and dowering her three daughters as they are soon to be of marriaging age. Because Bast is a horny little creature. <laughs> but not very good at vocabulary. So he has to ask if marriaging is a word. <laughs> To my employer, I leave my best pair of boots and whatsoever of my pants he finds fit him. And I love Cobb's bit, the boy does have a fine pair of boots. <laughs> Which is funny because I think that they're part of the glamour. Yeah. But also there's an implication that Coat or Kvothe can get into his pants. A little bit, yes. I mean, we really don't know what their relationship is. We don't. There's a lot of theories that they're lovers. There's a lot of theories that they're father and son, which makes that really creepy. There are theories that he is just an apprentice. There's everything. Yeah, I mean, for all we know, Kvothe could be his uncle. For all we know, Bast could be his prisoner. Yeah. Or Kvothe could be Bast's. And whatever the case may be, there is definitely... Something of a bond of affection between the two of them. Yes. This is also a chance to show off Bass's roguish side where he says, And I leave it to Pater Leoden to distribute the remainder of my worldly goods among the parish as being an immoral soul. I will have no further need of them. <laughs> and Chronicler is like, wait, wait, you mean immortal, right? And all Bass can do is just shrug. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so then... Cobb invites him over, and one of the things about Cobb is I kind of get the feeling that being the oldest person around, he thinks of everyone who is even remotely younger than him as boy. Right. So if you look at the artwork 
on the Name of the Wind card deck that we have, and you look at Chronicler, he's not a boy. He's balding, he's wrinkled, he's pretty old, he's just, yeah. But come over here, boy. Only Cobb can get away with that, I think. <laughs> I mean, it'd be like my grandpa calling my dad boy. Yeah, which is his right. Because your grandpa's 93? 94? Yeah, 94 now. And he's getting around pretty good for that age. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Chronicler has to hide his name. He initially says, David Carverson. David Carverson. Doesn't sound terribly uh, convincing on that one. <laughs> yeah, because even though this is a tiny, 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 middle of nowhere <laughs> town, they may have heard of the Chronicler. I do love that uh, Chronicler knows that the only way to deflect any suspicions is just to make a casual remark about how bad the roads are. And then suddenly, like clockwork, everyone complains about traffic. <laughs> It is one of those universal small talk things. That kind of talk annoys me. I don't like it. It's not useful. There's nothing interesting. It's just there to be complained about. <sighs> but it does deflect the suspicion and achieve its desired ends in this case. Yeah. So in come Carter and Aaron, currently known as the Smith's Prentice. And we get a rounded out cast of characters in the inn, right for a story. Coat goes off to the back to get food and drink. And somehow Chronicler winds up being the person allowed to or chosen to tell the story. And he makes a show of getting it wrong. And even just that little bit of chat about Quoth annoys Quoth, Coat, Quoth, whatever, and rankles him so much that he just slams the food down to try to interrupt the story. I do, however, really like the conversation between Chronicler and Cobb, where Cobb is like, no, 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 no. you're getting everything wrong. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Yeah, Cobb is definitely the sort of person who has to have the last word in every situation. And it really bugs him if people don't tell the story right. And by right, it means the way he's heard it. And so there's a bunch of bickering about whether this happened at the university or in Severin. This is our first mention of Severin. Which, the wise man's fear, takes place at least in part in Severin. It consumes a good chunk of the narrative, certainly. And it's an important location. And the story that they end up coming to seems like it's sort of a bastardized telling of the encounter in the alleyway with the thugs and also the smashing of the loot and a whole host of any other things that it could be. Including rescuing Fella from the fishery, except in this case it's a burning building that isn't part of the university and it's somebody's widow. I don't know. Yeah, and... Clearly, they've got a different version of Anchor, who, instead of being a kindly old innkeeper, is a widow who's taken a shine to Quoth. Yeah, there's a lot of back and forth here trying to get the particulars of the story right without actually even talking about the story itself. There's mispronunciations of names of cities, Amory instead of Emre, which Cobb is so authoritative 
that he's just like, that's the name. I don't care. That is the name. It's not on a map, but I don't read maps. That's not the point. You get the impression that Cobb is someone who, on his tombstone, it will read, who's telling the story now anyway? <laughs> and even if it isn't him, he thinks it's him. <laughs> and I think also Chronicler is encouraging some of this deviation so as to perhaps deflect suspicion away from their host. At least that's the impression I get. We get a couple of pages that are pretty much just the story being told wrong. And then a new person shows up at the inn. Yeah, this sort of has the feeling of everyone sitting in a saloon in a Western, and then you hear the slow clomp of boots with spurs on them in front of the door, pausing, waiting dramatically, and then busting in through the gates. And who should it be but the highwayman who had waylaid Chronicler at the beginning of the story? And we know this because of the royal blue fine linen shirt that is now pretty much destroyed. Yeah, Chronicler's pretty put out about all this. Focusing on the wrong thing. I mean, as far as he's concerned, he's like, look, you stole all my crap and you didn't even take good care of it? He's almost more upset about that part than the actual theft. I almost get the impression that had the highwayman walked in looking all perfectly fine and normal, with the shirt in good condition and what have you, Chronicler wouldn't have made a thing about it. Because he'd be like, at least that shirt is being used. <laughs> in the way I had intended, except on a different body. Right. But he feels like it's kind of a waste. Meanwhile, this person, not only are the clothes ragged and stained, but he is messed up. Yeah, he's got a glassy-eyed stare to him, and his beard has grown out, and his hair is all a mess. He has bramble burr all over his pants, and he's spouting out an odd language that no one seems to understand. Yeah, that was kind of unsettling. And instantly, Bast is on high alert here. Yeah, he's just trying to point something out, failing. <laughs> He finally just gives up and goes, Reshi! And of course, that doesn't work either. <laughs> right, because Quoth is like, okay, what's wrong with this person? Hang on, I'm trying to understand what he's saying. Bass, can you make this out? And I know I asked you to translate what he said. So I wasn't able to find all of it, but there's some of the things that he says that are, well, they're going to be pretty important coming up here. One of those in particular, he says... Rinta. And the thing that's going to be important about that is that Rinta means shaper. And this is also what Shayan refers to the Chandrian as when she tells Kvoth about their true names. This definitely brings that connection in. So it sounds like he is saying, are you a Chandrian? Or are you a shaper? These are the first that we have heard these terms. I'm looking for a shaper. Yeah. Is there anything about Ethan say to, I can't pronounce all of the things that have way too many 
consonants and not enough vowels. I haven't been able to find any further references on those yet. It is a mystery. As of right now, about all we can do is speculate about what all of this means. The only solid lead we have as of the wise man's fear is Rinta for Shaper or Chandrian. So definitely something to consider. I'm pretty sure that I have seen or heard the word Amawan before from the book, but I don't remember why or who. I don't know that it was in this book. It might be in the Wise Man's Fear. I'm actually looking it up right now. So Amawan also shows up in Felurian's song. So let me see. So in theory, it's some form of fey language. Which tracks with how Bast identifies the skin dancer. Although to say that he is fey is kind of like saying someone is from Africa. There are a bunch of diverse languages and cultures and traditions within the Fae that are wildly diverse and have very little to do with one another, but maybe get lumped together by the ignorant. Fair enough. Did you find out anything else about Amawan? Nothing concrete. Darn. I really want to be able to understand what's being said. <sighs> Yeah, all we've got are a bunch of guesses and speculations, and we'll see. I have a feeling that we'll find out more. In any case, Chronicler picks a fight with the dude. <laughs> and... action. It doesn't go well for him. No, the poor guy is probably dead. He's probably a reanimated corpse. I don't think that fighting a zombie is a great idea. Yeah, at this point, the mercenary is basically just a meat suit for the skin dancer. One of the things that was interesting to me was the description of his sword, which is described as covered in blood and rust, which seems strange to me. Like, it's only been about five days since Chronicler encountered him last, and... Rust doesn't appear that quickly. Unless there's a Chandrian. That was my thought. So, anyway, just something to keep in mind here. Yeah, the sword kind of snaps in the skin dancer's hand. Yeah, he does the creepy thing where he's like, instead of just trying to deflect this, he actually grabs it and lets it kind of cut through his hand and bleed all over the place. Um, which... Hey, there's some Amir imagery there as well. The bloody hand, or the red hand tattoo, is, of course, one of the identifiers of the Amir. So, interesting stuff there. This clearly is not going well, and Shep decides to be a hero, and it doesn't go well for him. He takes a kitchen knife and stabs the guy where the neck meets the shoulder, and for most people, that would be a near-fatal wound. But not for someone who's already dead. Right. As we say, this is just a meat suit. Ultimately, the fight boils down to undead creature commits violence against nearly everyone, tosses Bast, tries to get Chronicler, and more on that a little bit later. And then Kvoth tries to do a little bit of sympathy and fails before Aaron uses his 
bar of wrought iron to just wail on the dude and kill him and then just like, I'm not done yet. I'm going to keep hitting you over and over and over till I know you're not coming back. You know, I'm going to throw this out here. That's actually probably the sensible amount of violence in this situation because he's already witnessed a couple key factors here. So one, Aaron sees that Kvothe, who seems to know a fair amount, and he's intuited that Kvothe is up on things, he recognizes that instead of going for his drunk thumper, aka the Louisville slugger under the bar, Kvothe tries to set the skin dancer on fire. And he recognizes that if Kvothe thought that this was just a normal person, he would have just hit him with a baseball bat. So he figures, unnatural. Aaron also knows that based on his readings of the path, that iron is what you give to demons. I mean, give? It's what you use on demons. I think that's a better word choice. Yeah. So he initially takes a big swing and connects in the arm. And instead of just shrugging it off, this is the first thing that actually seems to have an effect on the guy. It also has a really large effect on Bast, who is like, get that away from me. Bast just kind of scampers off, just like, okay, I'm getting out of the way. I don't think scamper is the right word either. I think scramble is maybe a better word. Yeah, it's definitely a little less dignified. But this does wind up killing the skin dancer, as far as we know. And I'm also going to point out that Bast retreating from the guy swinging the giant thing of wrought iron doesn't necessarily give away his fey heritage because you know how, like, a vampire is susceptible to a wooden stake through the heart? Well, so is pretty much everything else. So, <laughs> same thing with the wrought iron bar that's being swung like a club. Whether you are fey or not, that's going to do some serious damage. <laughs> and... If I saw someone stacked like the Smith's Apprentice walking towards me, or in this case, barreling towards me, swinging a giant bar of iron, I'm getting out of the way. That doesn't make me fey. That makes me sensible. All that being said, the action stops. The guy's no longer twitching. And there was a moment of perfect quiet. It's like everybody holding their breath, waiting to see if it's safe to breathe again. And then the very last disgusting thing we hear out of the mercenary is a deep, wet coughing sound. And he vomited up a foul fluid, thick as pitch and black as ink. After a few minutes, even the praying stopped, and silence returned to the Waystone Inn. And scene. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of wrap up here, and what we see is that most of the Felling Knight crowd believe that this was just a sweet eater. I don't think they actually believe that. I think that they are making themselves believe that because... The other option is insane. Yeah, well, and it's sort of that defense mechanism where in order to hold a coherent worldview, you find the explanation that fits with everything else that you believe about the way things are. 
And these are folk who, while being superstitious, also like to make a great show about being not superstitious. They like to be just regular stitious. <laughs> As a result, they leap to the explanation that, yep, this is just a sweet eater, you know, must have gone crazy. It's a weird thing for them, but it's the regular kind of weird. It's not like sweet eaters are common here either. But it's an explanation that fits. So we get the part of the crime shows that no one shows the cleanup. Kvothe has to mop the floor seven times before it stops being bloody water. Shep is dead. Because of course somebody had to die. Yeah, there's consequences to all of the mystical tomfoolery that goes on here. And Shep pays for it. His attempt at heroism only got him killed and didn't really accomplish much. It feels very mundane. There is no mysticism on the part of the town folk. They want everything to be ordinary. So it is. And I think that that's why Kvothe is here. It's definitely a good place if you want to just be plain folk. We also see the conversation that he has with the Smith's apprentice who finally gives his name. I want to point out something, and this will lighten the mood. Both and Chronicler and Bast are kind of just tapping their watches, tapping their foot. The Smith's apprentice is still here. Why is the Smith's apprentice still here? I don't want the Smith's apprentice still here. Go home. Go home. Go away. Go home. Are you thinking about the night we first really started dating? Yeah, I am. Yeah, so to tell the story here. And we may have told this on the pod before, but you get to hear it again. So, our first real date date where we decided, yeah, we're going to make this a thing. I had invited you over to play D&D with some of my friends. So, after the game wraps up, we're just kind of sitting around chatting, you know, as you do. And... My roommates go out to run an errand. I think they had to drop a friend off at the airport. And then one of the other guys is like, okay, I got to go take care of something at home. So that leaves the two of us and then one other member of our group. And he is just glad to have a new member of the group. And so I remember the two of you were just sitting there talking about Red Dwarf. And he just kept going on and on and on and we kept trying to just okay that's cool man time to wrap it up and mind you i really like red dwarf i love it absolutely adore it but i was also like leave i just kept thinking goodbye joe like in werewolf from MST3K when Joe Estevez just refuses to leave. <laughs> so finally, he gets the hint. Actually, I don't even think he got the hint. <laughs> oh, I think your roommates came back before he left. Yeah. Finally, he got bored <laughs> and left. And then we ended up, you know, having some time together outside. But yeah. You get the feeling they're looking at Aaron a little bit like that, too. Now, granted, I think there's some interesting conversation here between Quoth and Aaron that I do want to touch on a little bit. First of all, Aaron recognizes that 
Quoth isn't going to look at him funny for suspecting it was a demon. And for that matter, neither are Bast and Chronicler. They're all outsiders. All of these characters are people who are from other places. Aaron is from Ranish, which is a town over, so he's already an outsider. Quoth comes from who knows where. Chronicler is new person in town up past Abbot's Ford. <laughs> past Abbot's Ford could really be anywhere. But looking at the map at the beginning of the book, not even sure that Abbotsford or Noor, for that matter, are even on this map. Nope. Either way, these are people who are not a part of the regular townsfolk, and as such are probably not going to spread around wild rumors about him, because they're not ingrained with the community. So I think he feels a sense of kinship with them, and he feels safe with them in a way that he doesn't with the others who, even though they ostensibly think of him as a friend and equal, still regard him with a certain amount of patronizing outsideriness. So he reveals that he thinks that that was a demon. Turns out, not far off. I mean, and really, at this point, their version of demon is really just anything from not of this world. And so by that definition, yeah, accurate. You know, he just wants to hear his suspicion validated. He just wants to believe that his reasoning is not specious, that he's not crazy for thinking it, that he's not overreacting or anything like that. He just wants to know that he's okay to believe what he does. And Quoth gives that to him, which I think is important. And initially Quoth just refers to him as boy, kind of the way everybody does, and here we see the smith's apprentice interject and say, Aaron, my name's Aaron. He's claiming his identity for himself. He's allowing himself to be defined by who he is, not where he's from. And he's asking to be treated as an equal and not just a subordinate, not just an apprentice, not just a boy, but a person. And Kvothe grants him that. We'll talk a bit more about that going forward here in Fernimos. I mean, I figured as much. Real quick, before we're completely done, I want to go a little more into why we chose desaturation. Yeah, so here we see heroics happen, but the quoth of the framing device is definitely mortal compared to the quoth of the story, right? He seems perfectly normal, there's nothing heightened about him. In fact, he seems thinner, like less of a character, like less of a person, more of a blank slate. He seems duller. He doesn't take up as much space. He doesn't draw the eye. His magic doesn't even work. Even the colors used to describe him seem muted. Like everything has been drained out. Yeah, so... When he's described as Quoth, his hair is described as being fire red. His eyes are bright green. Yeah, like these very vivid, saturated colors. Heightened, hyper-real. And when he's described as Coat the Innkeeper, his hair is still red, but it's an ordinary red. Not even the sort that gets commented on. And his eyes just are kind of a regular green-eyed color, not this bright, vivid jungle green, almost. 
and he fades into the background to the point where Chronicler talks about how when he's Kvoth, he commands your attention, he draws your eye, he is at the center of everything. Anytime he is Kvoth, you cannot take your eyes off him. You can't not just be drawn to him. He's magnetic. He seems to command attention, command reverence and admiration. When he's Coat, though, he seems like he serves everyone else. He is someone who disappears into the background and doesn't really exist as a single person. He exists as an archetype. He seems lesser than... And so, desaturation. He's a desaturated version when he is Coat than when he is Quoth. The last little bit, Bast talks about how the Smith's Prentice has always kind of put him on edge. Aaron makes Bast a little nervous. And Quoth is kind of amused at this image because he doesn't really see Bast as a person who would be afraid of others. But the boy reeks of iron and spends all day handling it, baking it, breathing its smoke. And then he comes in here with clever eyes. Aaron sees more than the others do. Yeah, and for a creature like Bast, who exists based on deception, everything that he does is an element of misdirection or glamour or something to make you look elsewhere he exists to hide in plain sight. And so to have someone who, one, wields his single supernatural weakness, and two, seems to have a way of piercing the veil, so to speak, seeing through these glamours and putting two and two together and figuring out where things don't make sense, that would clearly make Bast nervous. I can see why. Bast explains to the audience and to Chronicler and Quoth, that he believes that the creature that the Smith's Apprentice had to wail upon with an iron bar for minutes to kill was probably a skin dancer, which is a term we've already been using, obviously, throughout describing this. But he's a little bit disconcerted because it seemed sort of dumb and it didn't try to escape into a new body. Yeah, this is like any time you're dealing with the thing. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> like, wait, why didn't it try and infect a new host? <laughs> didn't it try to infect a new host? I mean, Chronicler's hurt. He's numb. There's something unsettling about that wound, too. Because it wasn't like he got clawed or anything like that. He got touched. And after he was touched is when the creature was killed. Yeah, there's something creepy about all that. It hurt like 12 bastards when he touched me. Like something was tearing up inside. It just feels like the thing. <laughs> and then Bass seems like he's actually trying to be the decent person and take care of Chronicler's wound as an excuse to get Quoth out of the room and then just go, hey, hey, you do not ask about the problems. We don't talk about music, and we don't talk about why sympathy didn't work. And if you do, you will not leave this place. And I do think that Bast does bear an ounce of sympathy for Chronicler, but he also will not hesitate to kill him if he messes up the plan. 
Quoth comes back, and we get a little bit of cryptic discussion about what was found in the Underthing. Underneath the university, I found what I had wanted most, yet it was not what I expected, as is often the case when you gain your heart's desire. There is discussion before this about one's heart's desire, especially Quoth's heart's desire. About 50 pages in, when Chronicler found himself thinking of a story he had heard, one of the many, the story told of how Quoth had gone looking for his heart's desire. He had to trick a demon to get it, but once it rested in his hand, he was forced to fight an angel to keep it. His heart's desire. Very specific and interesting worded. It's very evocative, too. Like, if we look at Quoth, the character, we can think about these burning needs that he has within his heart. There is that need to understand what happened to his parents, which manifests as a need for knowledge, and therefore a need to get into the university, specifically the archives. And then there's also that need just to be loved. And that is something else that I think is his heart's desire. You can see this in the way he is with Denna, where their interactions are filled with this longing for someone to view him as this person of value and worth. And what's interesting to me on that, there is one person who gives him unconditional love, and she can be found in the underthing. That's right. Ari definitely does treat Quoth with the kind of respect and affection and love that he's been craving and needing pretty much his entire life. He's driven by that wound and deficiency between his time in Tarbian and at the university, just that need to be someone of value. And the thing about it is that you don't always understand what it is that you actually want. The thing that you think is your heart's desire may not actually be what you think it is. You may have misidentified what your heart actually wants or what your heart needs. I mean, it really reminds me of a classic bit from the Microsoft Manual of Style for technical publications. <laughs> Explain. So within the style guide, so just to back up, for those of you who don't do technical writing for a living, a style guide basically talks about how people working for a company will describe given things and what kind of wording will be used, and it sets the language. And one of my favorite bits is this moment of peak dad, where it says need, and then the definition is often confused with want. <laughs> and it made me think of how many times as a kid I was like, well, I need that toy, or I need ice cream, or I need <laughs> what have you then my dad would come back with, you're old enough for your wants not to hurt you. We can think something is a need or something that will truly satisfy something deep, but maybe it isn't. It isn't the thing that we think it is. It isn't what we actually need or what we actually want even. We misidentify these things all the time. On that note, I think we can move on to the Phrenemos as I'm pretty sure... I have deduced, and maybe our entire audience by now has deduced, I'm sure 
You're picking Aaron. Well, you're no fun now, are you? I'm lots of fun. I was right. So, yeah, I chose Aaron, a.k.a. the Smith's Apprentice. So a couple notes. First of all, Aaron is the Hellenized Hebrew masculine given name that means variously high mountain, mountain of strength, exalted, enlightened, or bearer of martyrs. This name first appears in the Old Testament as the brother of Moses, who is famous for carrying a rod. Just an interesting little tidbit there for you. I really do believe that there are a lot of these detailed explanations that inform Pat's writing in a way that isn't blatantly obvious, like naming a character who is a werewolf Lupin. Right. It's an illusion, and it makes sense, and it fits with the character, because it tells us a little bit about this guy who is bigger than pretty much everyone else around him, and he's shaped by wielding heavy materials constantly. So high mountain and mountain of strength obviously fit in with that schema there. But then we've also got that enlightened meaning, which points to his nature as being a questioner, someone who looks past the immediate explanation to try and find deeper truths. And we have some examples of this. For one thing, he reasons that the skin dancer is not of this world. And while he identifies it as a demon instead of a creature of the Fae, that's close enough for his worldview. He also is able to intuit that Quoth was trying to set the skin dancer on fire, though he didn't know that he was trying to use sympathy. He also recognized that the reason Quoth would use fire instead of just the Louisville slugger is because Quoth also recognizes this as something from not of this world. And then at the end, he recognizes when it is time to take action. And in this case, he does so decisively. You could say that again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this actually brings to mind the golden mean or moderation or balance. These are things that you will oftentimes see as described as wise and virtuous and good, but are oftentimes misunderstood as meaning equal amounts. So when Aristotle talks about virtue, he does not mean that it is the opposite of a vice. Rather, he recognizes virtue as the golden mean of two opposed passions. I know that you've talked about this before in the podcast, but go ahead and give us the example again, because it was probably six months ago. In this case, he doesn't mean that you need to have the exact same amount of these two passions. What he means is that you need to have the right amount of these two passions in the specific situation. So if you think of the whole thing as a balancing scale, your situation represents the fulcrum point. And based on where that fulcrum is, you may need way more of one than the other. You might say acting with anger versus acting with compassion as your opposing things, right? Well, virtue is finding the right amount for each of those. In this case, reacting with anger and decisiveness requires you to be pretty violent. He reacted in a violent fashion and it was the exact right amount of violence for that situation. Because the fulcrum was weighted such that acting with compassion and thoughtfulness 
was not going to solve the problem. Because of where that fulcrum was, you need to react swiftly and forcefully, which he did. It's not just a pure neutral, <laughs> like if I do one thing angry, I have to do another thing kind. It's not that at all. It is knowing where the fulcrum is and then from there waiting accordingly so that you are still maintaining the balance. And in this case, Aaron does what he needs to do. And you'll note that he doesn't sit here and crow about his victory. He mourns the loss of his friend. He is troubled by the implication of what he had to do. He is worried about the consequences of it. And he is concerned about what's to come. But he did the right thing in the moment. And that's what makes him practically wise, which is why he is our Phronimos for the week. I think that that's a really awesome way to look at it. I would like you to go to our Twitter. We have a new follower who has been catching up as we are recording episode 45. I believe they're on like, oh boy. The last one I tracked for sure was episode 15 or 16 because they're asking questions and making comment about some of the things that I'm like, I don't remember that. Racking brain, scrubbing through all of the torpor of... 2020 and then going oh yeah that's what we said <laughs> because I think even if it was released in like March <laughs> it probably was recorded in like February or January <laughs> we've slept a few times since then yeah all the memory banks completely gone but there's a comment that she made about Davy's name, and I would like you to look it up on our Twitter. Okay, hang on a second here. Because I find it fascinating. Our friend writes, Davy also means goddess or divine feminine. If Pat knows anything about India or yoga, there's a chance he knows that. I really like the idea that names, especially in the name of the wind, where names are important, I really love the idea that the names are wrought with meaning without it being the, I'm clever in a way that I'm expecting you all to figure out and call me clever for. I think it's appropriate rather than being, please praise me. And I like it. I agree. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. fantastic. Did you read some of them? No. Hold on. Okay, so now, full disclosure, I'm just looking at our Twitter and see a new tweet from them. They've gotten to the point where, uh, where I had to eat the Pop-Tart. <laughs> I brought you this Pop-Tart. Ooh, what's in it? Raspberries and punishment. <laughs> it's not a very smart Pop-Tart. This is the joy that I get from interacting with you guys who listen to us. I'm so very happy. More of you guys need to talk to us, please. At Waystone Pod on Twitter, please. 
we're happy to chat. Absolutely. All right. So that was our Phronemos. Now I believe it is time for us to take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin and share an interesting fact of the week. And it's your turn. What do you got? All right. So can we all agree that lead, while quite useful in very specialized ways, is dangerous to living creatures, including humans? Agreed. Okay. Well, would it surprise you at all to know that once upon a time, people actually ate it on purpose? Not surprising at all. Well, it turns out that lead has a naturally sweet taste, which is partly why there was such a problem with kids eating lead paint chips because they tasted sweet. So naturally, we humans have used it as an artificial sweetener. Ancient Romans actually added lead in the form of lead acetate to their wine, which the aristocracy drank in abundance. It was also used as a preservative since it kills stuff like bacteria. And as a result, many of Rome's citizens, especially the richer citizens and those with power, suffered from infertility and dementia. So the other part of that equation is because the running water and pipe system that fed a lot of their just day-to-day -day stuff also used lead pipes. It meant that even if you weren't partaking in a lot of the wine and general revelry, you were constantly ingesting amounts of lead, which led to, of course, lead poisoning, which also leads to bouts of insanity and <laughs> general poor decision-making. And it's credited actually as part of why Rome fell. Though it does seem you find this interesting, even if you already knew it. Yes. Because that is a rule. Yes, I have to find it interesting. That's the real catch. Not that I knew it or not, it wasn't interesting. And yes, it's interesting. Hence the fact that you actually know more than what I talked about. Yes. <laughs> this is what happens when you talk about stuff in my wheelhouse. History is one of those things. Yep. <laughs> so yes, interesting. No raspberries for you this week. Yay. Thank you. You're welcome. And so with that, now it's time to talk about our seven words. So I am on book duty this week. You said duty. I did. I regret nothing. Go ahead. So I had a couple of them. Three examples that stuck out to me were, we might have a little something in the back, which is kind of fun. Then we've got, you're going to give the boy nightmares. And then finally, Aaron then. I suppose you deserve that. I like those words. Yeah, that last one is what I picked because it is both saying you deserve your name and in this case like we discussed earlier that name really does fit a lot of the characteristics of this character and i think at one point we said we don't even find out his name until the next book we were wrong but it's still within a very short amount of time before the next book so i'm going to still count it he goes several hundred pages before he gets a name almost 700 pages and it fits. It's one that, again, like this idea of a name that fits you like a glove, this true name that describes who you are on a deep level. And I think that uh, that works. And so on that note, we've got seven words from life. What do you have? It is finally, finally fall or autumn weather, whichever one you prefer. I think autumn is a little more poetic 
This is both your and my favorite time of year. This is where we want to cuddle up under a blanket, where I want to break into my large stash of tea, where our cats try to get however warm they possibly can be, either by sitting on top of a vent, which is under our couch, so Sokka disappears for an entire season, or under a blanket on top of a lap, which is where Lilo likes to live. It makes us want to pick up books like The Name of the Wind, like The Starless Sea. The leaves are changing. The weather is turning. Last night, the wind howled. And so my seven words are, it's quite blustery today. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I have really enjoyed having these crisp autumn days where the two of us can kind of just curl up and read a book, listen to music, just generally relax and enjoy one another's company. Autumn is a great reading season. And speaking of that, as we wrap up and only have two more episodes left of The Name of the Wind, we've kind of been going back and forth on what we want to do for a little bit of an interlude I am running smack into my, I have to get this edited so that you guys can hear it on time, time. And I want to rebuild my bank. We've kind of been tossing around what book we want to read in the interlude because we are definitely going to dive headlong into the wise man's fear. But I think right now we're going to give everyone a chance to kind of catch up. There have been 45 episodes now. There will be 47 by the end of it. And then we're going to do an episode one revisit. We've improved a lot since then, since our first recording. And I want to go back to the beginning and do it better. But I also don't want to get rid of the first episode we ever did. I kind of want to see this more as not a redoing, but a revisiting because not only have we learned more about just the mechanical act of podcasting, I think we've also come to some insights about the story itself. And I would be curious to see how those impact how we read that first section again. Absolutely agreed. And so we were planning on possibly reading Lovecraft Country and doing an analysis that was a little bit lighter than our current read-through of The Name of the Wind so that we can do more chunks of book in an episode and not have like, you know, 30 episodes devoted to it. But we worry that it could lead to kind of a performative wokeness if we're not careful. We're both very aware that our heritage is very white European. And so we don't want to come across like authorities on what it's like to be a black person in the 1950s, even though it is a fantasy horror novel. We want to analyze it for the pod someday in the future, but we'd really like to invite someone who is black or multiple creators who are black and geeks who either have read it or are going to read it and want to analyze it to come and talk with us about it rather than us try to put our stamp of, I don't know, us 
our authority, whatever, on this narrative that we could never claim to be truly understanding of. Really what we want are people who can actually speak to lived experiences about this. When I read Lovecraft Country, it was pretty eye-opening to me, but I also recognized that I was reading this as a white cishet man, which is different from the experiences described, and so all I can do is imagine. And there are limits to that. I can't speak authoritatively about it. It's not mine to share. So I would be very interested in helping to bring those perspectives to light and celebrate those. And also give a little bit of our platform to people who can speak upon these experiences that, again, we really can't. We can only talk about it in ways that looking at these events as horrific and as some of these things that I'm ashamed that I didn't know about. But in order to give it the time and care that it deserves, it really can't be this interlude. So instead, because it's coming up on fall, blustery, November, our favorite time of year, we're going to be looking at The Starless Sea, which is kind of a love story for books and narrative and portal fantasy without being chintzy or cheesy. It's almost looking at it as a utopia of book lovers. There are diverse characters, but you never really get into the greater socioeconomical lenses or points of view or discrimination. Not quite the same way that you would in certain other books that we have enjoyed. But it's that kind of utopian, everyone loves one another, and there is a clear-cut evil, and there is a clear-cut not evil. And we are really interested in diving into that story. So at that point, we're going to be doing releases every other week, and less in-depth, until I have a bank built up of the wise man's fear beginning. And then we'll go back to one for a week. So, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 89 through 91 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of wrapping up. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And a huge thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating this world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always... Here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! So Sokka's like, hey, but I want in that room because you guys are in that room. And I'm like, mm, nope. 
all the contraband is in this room. All the stuffed animals. All of the Lego that I want to have out that isn't in your office. <laughs> the instruments, anything and everything he could chew on. This is the last Sokka Free Haven. 